And so what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to talk about six fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith that that every Christian needs to believe. You don't have to believe certain things in order to be saved. I say that all the time, and it's true. But once you're saved, there's some things you need to start believing. It's the evidence of your salvation. And there are a lot of doctrines. There are a lot of teachings. There are a lot of things, different uh, traditions, different uh, denominations, different ways of looking at Scripture may see them differently, but uh, we're going to look at it from the way that it's best to see it through the eyes of the New Testament. And uh, at the end, of the end of the day, fundamentally, there are six categories of what we would call truth or doctrine that, that matter. There's a lot more than that, but these are the ones that really matter the most and uh, that, are, that are foundational to our faith. I'm not going to give you a, a, a ton of scripture. I'm not going to, you know, I hate when I sit somewhere and I say, look up this verse, look up that verse, and look up this verse. I, I just don't want to do that. It gets, gets boring, you know, to be honest. And uh, I'll probably do a little bit of that. I will give you some scriptures. You want to write them down, you can look them up later. Uh, if, you, if you disagree with me and want to come afterwards and say, I don't see how you get that, tell me. I'll be happy to, to do that. Uh, so it's always interesting where to start with uh, with, with the teachings, uh, the six uh, fundamental teaching truths. When I was in a seminary, the first class I ever took, I've said this before, in seminary uh, was theology. My first, you know, my first semester, first class that morning, uh, I was in San Antonio and prof flew down, it was theology. And it was called systematic theology. Uh, the, the, systematic simply means there's a process and order to it. And it's always interesting, where do you begin? Do you begin talking first about God or do you begin talking first about the fact that God reveals himself? Because you can't know anything about God until he reveals himself. It's kind of like which came first, the chicken or the egg. Well, God comes first. But you start with the idea of revelation, the idea that God reveals himself. We, we tend to call that the doctrine of the Bible, or the doctrine of the scriptures. Uh, I'll refer to the Baptist faith and message one time, and this is it. And if you don't know what the Baptist faith and message is, it could be a good thing. Uh, but I'll probably next week or the following week I'll tell you what it is and kind of explain a little bit. But uh, Baptist faith and the message begins with the doctrine of the Bible, the Word of God, and it begins this way. It says, Scripture is truth without any mixture of error. I've always liked that. There's something that we need to understand is truth. There's no error in it. And I'll talk about error in a little bit. But what we need to understand fundamentally is all we know about God, we know because he reveals himself to us. Our God is a revealing God. I talk about this all the time. I preach about God revealing himself all the time. It's important that we categorize it that way because we live in a culture, we live in a world that tends not to believe in God, at least the way we believe in him. And they need to understand why they need to believe in him. And for us simply to say, well, the Bible says this about God and the Bible says that about God. Well, if they don't believe in God and don't believe in the Bible, they don't care what the Bible says. But if you help them understand that God begins to reveal himself to us, and there's different ways he reveals himself to us, and ultimately you have to get to the Bible. I mean, you have to get there. But if you begin just by helping them understand that God is a revealing God, things can begin to click and make sense. In fact, there's two types of revelation. There's what we call general revelation, and there's special or specific revelation. General revelation, I preached on that, about that back in, I did the series in January, and the one who makes sense of it all about God. And, and, you know, in the book of Romans tells us that you can, God reveals himself just by nature and by our minds. We, we can conceive of God. Um, we can look around us and see God is there. But the main way that God speaks to us is specifically as he reveals himself to us in what we call the Bible. 
One of the things that I say all the time is, you know, the Bible is, is God, the Old Testament, God is, is a God pointing to something, the New Testament is him fulfilling it. When you come to the scriptures, there are certain key things there that help us understand something about God revealing himself. For instance, in the Old Testament, the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. God is speaking. God is saying something. God's revealing himself. Amos is a great one, you know, one of those classic prophets. God is speaking through Amos. In Deuteronomy, we're told that if someone claims to be a prophet, how do you know what they say is their legitimate prophet? Well, if what they say comes true. They're not just talking about telling the future, but if what they claim about God is true, and that becomes it. So God begins to reveal himself. We see it through the pages of the Old Testament. In his revealing, he's pointing to something. And what he's pointing to is someone we call Christ. And God ultimately reveals himself to us most completely in Jesus. It's the final and complete revelation of God. But how do we understand Jesus and how we understand God is always through the pages of Scripture. You don't understand Jesus except through Scripture. He's hardly ever mentioned anywhere else, which is good. There's a couple of writers, contemporary of Jesus, uh, that mention him. But after that, I mean, they just mention him. Everything we know about Jesus is, comes from the Bible, comes from the New Testament. And the early church fathers and others quoting it, and that's what we know. In the New Testament, both Peter and Paul attest to the fact that what God reveals to us is important. And that it is something we can trust. In 2 Timothy 3.16 Paul reminds us that all scripture is inspired or breathed to us by God and is profitable to us. In 2 Peter chapter 1, towards the end, Peter says that the men of old wrote the scriptures. They were carried away by the Spirit of God. So both Paul and Peter refer back to the Old Testament, their scriptures. They had, the New Testament wasn't around when they wrote this, though Peter makes allusions to what Paul has to say. But they remind us that the New Testament then was given to us by God. It was inspired. It was breathed by the Holy Spirit. And what we say about the old, say about the new. It's true. Especially when you realize that everything in the New Testament becomes real. So there's, there's words that we use to talk about the doctrine of the word of God. As God reveals himself to us. We use words like inspiration. We use words like inerrancy. And we use words like infallibility. Those are very technical terms that in the world in which I live have a great deal of importance. And oftentimes you will measure someone's orthodoxy by whether they adhere to inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy. More quickly, I don't use those words with y'all. I use the word revelation. There's a reason for it. But let me tell you what those words mean in case you went across them. Inspiration is what we get from 2 Timothy and from 2 Peter. It means literally to be breathed in by God. To be inspired then is the idea that God was behind the writing of the scriptures. That God inspired men, into some cases, like in the case of Deborah in the Old Testament when she spoke, inspired women to speak or to write. He inspired them and he gave them the thoughts and ideas in the mind to do so. Now, you know, how technical you want to get and how he did it is for another place, and I'm not really concerned about that. But we understand that all scripture then was inspired by God. That's why we say that the Bible is truth without any mixture of error. Inerrancy and infallibility are kind of parts of inspiration. Inerrancy simply means this, that when the Bible speaks factually, there is no error. When it speaks factually, there's no error. So when, when um, Luke tells us that Jesus was born 
you know, at the time that he was born, when Augustus uh, was, was in charge. And that, you know, when we know from Matthew and Luke that, that Herod the Great was there. And uh, he wrote at a particular time. When he speaks factually, he's true. Even if we can't find something to corroborate, it doesn't mean it's not true. It's, it's true. When we told that, that Joshua, you know, crossed uh, the Jordan River and part of it and went into Jericho and, and defeated the city of Jericho, that's factually true. And you have to believe with the factual truth of Scripture. Infallibility means that when Scripture speaks about things that have a moral nature or an ethical nature, that it's also true. So when we were told that God loves us, that's, that's true. It's, it's, it's in, you know, infallible. It's the truth. When we were told that the wages of sin is death and that our sins condemn us to hell, that is infallible. That is true. We believe in the fallibility of Scripture. So we hold all those things. So when I preach to you or when I teach to you and I take God's word like I will do Sunday and I will teach from it or preach from it, I'm always working under the assumption that that it's inspired by God, inerrant, and infallible. When there are difficulties to a passage, I don't think there's any difficulties in what I'm doing Sunday, but when there are difficulties in a passage, I work through those to get to an understanding so I can do my best to explain it to you so to remove any difficulties that you might have. So when Sunday I preached from Matthew 16 that Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi, then that's a factually true statement. And he went there and it was a real place. And when I, I preached to you the things that he said and, and, and the passage that, that I use, it's infallible. The truth that is there is real. All of that, though, is from the standpoint of revelation. So the, the reason or the, the idea of speaking in terms of revelation is... If you speak always, and this is what churches did for years of inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy, a lot of lost people struggle. So they'll go to the Bible and they'll look for all these places to try to prove you were wrong. There's an error here. There's an inconsistency there. I get that all the time. I understand that. When you preach from the standpoint of revelation, that God begins to reveal himself to us, it's really difficult for them to say, well, he didn't do that because he did it all through the pages of Scripture. They can go and they can find that in Kings and Chronicles, there's some differences in some of the way the same thing's explained. And I get that. There's explanations for it. I usually don't feel like explaining it because it's a hassle. But there are explanations for it. But if what you talk about is revelation, then they tend to find, not to find the inconsistencies in that. They tend then to spend their time trying to understand what it is that God reveals. The first thing that God reveals to us then is that there is a God, which is the be- second basic fundamental teaching and doctrine that we come to. And, and, you know, the whole Bible is about God from page one to the page. Yeah, you get the picture. All those, all into the concordance. It's all about God. And if all that's what it's about. God's revealing about himself. And it begins in Revelation 1.1. And, and I've probably preached from, I mean, Genesis 1-1. I have probably preached from Genesis 1-1 more than any other passage in Scripture. And Genesis 1-1 simply tells us, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And from this passage, we learn several things about God. The first thing we learn about God is he is holy. The word holy is never used. But God is holy because the word holy means to be separate from his creation, to be separate and complete unto yourself. God is separate from his creation because he created it. He created it distinct from him. The second thing we understand about God is that he is eternal. He existed before what he created. When I preach from Genesis 1-1, I oftentimes say there was a time when there was nothing at all, nothing but God, because there was. And then I'll say there was a time when all that changed, because it did. It changed because God created something 
out of nothing, which means if you can create something out of nothing, the other thing we see about God is that he's powerful. He's all-powerful. So we learn right off the bat from Genesis that God is a holy God. He's an eternal God. He's a powerful God, and he is then a creative God. And as you go through those pages and realize that he creates man and the way he deals with man, and then you begin to realize that God is a loving God. And so you start off with that understanding of God, that God is holy, eternal, powerful, creative, and loving. There are many other things you can say about God, that God is immutable, that God does not change. You can say that God is a God who is transcendent. In other words, that God is with us. And you can also say that though that God is a God that is away, that he has a, he's moved away from us. And so you can talk about the God who is far away and the God who is near. Uh, I'm, reading, I'm rereading something from Francis Schaeffer, and uh, one of the things that he talks about of God is he's the God who is near, the God who is present, the God who is here with us. It's an important understanding that, that God, most false teachings or most uh, false religions about God basically have a fault God or have a faulty this very idea of, of God's being holy and separate. Pagan religions all have God as being intertwined with his creation, not separate from it. That God is somehow the spirit or the essence of God is in all of us. You've heard people say there's a little bit of God in all of us. That's not true. That is a, a false teaching. That is, that is incorrect. Or you've heard people say that we're all somehow connected to that holy power of God. They speak that way oftentimes about nature. It's the idea that, that God is not separate from what he created. But the fundamental thing about God is he is separate and perfect and without any error in him at all. We would understand that God is powerful, and God knows things, and God is present. We used the phrase all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. And, 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 you know, I don't, you know, I understand what those means, and different people have different understandings. I simply say that God is powerful, and he has all the power there is to have. God is knowing, he knows everything there is to know, and he is present. He is always present at every moment and second of our lives. He is there. And that is how we understand God. And so you have this understanding of God, that he is who he is. And there's tons more you can say. But the way we understand God is he is revealed to us. God reveals himself to us. We understand God for the sake of humanity. Which brings us then to the next doctrine we would talk about. And that is the doctrine of man. And uh, that can be the most complicated doctrine of all in many ways. To understand man, we begin with the fact that in Genesis we're told that God created us last of his creation. He created birds, and he created fish, or created fish first and birds. Then he created all the beasts, and then he created us. And when he created us, he made a distinction between us and the rest of creation. Now, I said this not too long ago in a sermon that I preached, that all the other aspects of creation, of animals, uh, he created by kind. There are different kinds of fish. There are different kinds of birds. But when he made humans... He didn't make different kinds of human. Only one. We, we, we often talk about there's all different kinds of people. There aren't different kinds of people. People are all fundamentally the same. There are different personalities within people and different ways of relating, but we're all the same. He created us, but the way he made distinctions between us is he created us male and female. Now, in doing so, in creating us, what God did to distinguish us from the rest of creation is he created us in his image. That is... that. Most of our mistakes 
about humanity and misunderstanding humanity is because we don't understand what it means to be created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, he created us in his image, male and female. He created both men and women are created in his image. And he makes the distinction, men and women were all created as separates us by men and women created in his image. Now, to be created in his image means three fundamental things. Some people say it's one of these three things, but I would argue that it's all three. One, to be created in his image has a substantive quality. That means there's a substance about us that's like God. That's what most of you grow up with, especially in Baptist life. We have a soul, and we we live forever, and we have the ability to have conscious thoughts and to communicate. That's the substantive nature of who we are, and there is truth to that, obviously. We function in a way that the rest of the created world doesn't function. I mean, I, I know, I mean, I remember when I was at Trinity, after I was Trinity, I was a grad alumni, and they asked me, they asked alumni to come in and interview uh, prospective students to go to Trinity. And uh, I was interviewing this prospective girl, and she had spent her summer swimming and communicating with the dolphins. And I'm like, uh, you'll fit in here with every other nut job that comes this way. I understand ants communicate, dolphins communicate, I got that. But they don't, they don't communicate in the way that we do. It's not the same communication. My dog communicates, wags his tail, licks me on the face. The other dog kind of huffs and, you know, storms off, and they, they communicate. But we verbally communicate in such a way as that we express independent thoughts and ideas and actions. And we have the capacity to think abstractly. That's the substantive difference. The second thing about being created in the image of God is we are created relationally. We have a way of relating. Now, I know animals relate to each other. I get that, but not the way that we relate. Because we have multiple relationships that have complicated layers to them. And we interact with different people on different levels. And in fact, we can act, interact with the same person on different levels at some point. So our relational aspect to God and to other people. And then the third thing about us is we have functionality. We have a function. God said, take care of the garden, be fruitful and multiply. And he gives us a function. And so humans have a functional aspect. Because we're created that way, God created us in relationship with him. And created some relationship with him with all those different levels. And our relationship with God is such that we have the ability that God gives us freedom. The freedom to worship him or to reject him. I've talked about this many times. In order for us to truly have freedom, we have to have the freedom to reject God. And so God gives us the freedom to reject him because in giving us that freedom, he has given us the freedom to worship him. And when he created Adam, he said, you can enjoy that freedom and you can enjoy anything in the garden that I give to you except one tree. Don't eat of that tree. And the basic temptation then from the serpent to Adam through Eve was to eat of the tree because God is lying to you and you will be like God. And therein lies the very fault of man. The fundamental temptation of humanity at every level is the desire to be God, to be in control, to run our own life. And however you want it, it's the desire to be God. In Adam 8, and he experienced an opening that he did not have. He understood moral failure. Now, while God spared him at that moment, he was still going to die. And God kicked him out of the garden. And from that moment on, sin dominates the story of man all the way up to Jesus. Sin dominates the story of man. So you go to chapter 4, Cain and Abel sinned. You go, keep reading in chapter 4, other guys are sinning. You go in chapter 5, you know, how all these people come around. You get to chapter 6, 
I'm going to have the story of Noah, and it says to us that God looked at man and saw that the thoughts and actions of men were only evil all the time. Evil. We became evil. And that describes us. When you get to Genesis chapter 12 and Abraham comes on the scene, the story of man takes a change because now God is going to work to bring salvation to mankind. He is going to redeem what he created. And from Adam to Jesus is a story of a man's progeny and his people who we call Israel, who were chosen by God not to be his special people in the sense that only they would be saved, but to be his special people because the Savior would come from them. Everything that God did from the time of Adam on, you could argue even from the time of Genesis 1 on, points to Jesus, to come into Jesus, not to a people called Israel who were to be God's people in a perpetuity despite everything that they did. It all is about Jesus. The people of Israel are a means to an end. The end is Jesus. The people of Israel are not the ends. They are not the ends to a means. And people get that wrong within Christianity. They get that wrong all the time. And so all of it points in to man. What we know about us is this. Man is sinful. Jesus says we're sinful. That's why he says go and sin no more. And Paul in Romans describes our sin. He describes our sin in Romans 1. Then he describes our sin when he says, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, no wages of sin is death. That is the condition of mankind. We are sinners, incapable of saving ourselves. Can talk about the doctrine of man probably longer than any other doctrine because of all the complexities to it. But from the doctrine of man in our sinful condition, able to save ourselves, which I've spent the whole series on the cross dealing with, we come to the doctrine of Jesus. With Jesus is the doctrine of salvation. And that's where you find the doctrine of salvation is with Jesus. And there are three fundamental things to talk about Jesus. There are dozens, I realize, but three fundamental things for our purposes today. His incarnation, his resurrection, his second coming. He was God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. Both Matthew and Luke attest to the virgin birth of Jesus, and John attests to the nature of Jesus. When he says, in the beginning was the word, was with word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, verse 1, John 1, 1, John 1, 14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, which only God has, glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth, characteristics of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Belief in the incarnation is fundamental to the Christian faith. Once you become a Christian, to deny the incarnation of Christ raises serious issues about the credibility of your faith. Now, I know, I know people will say it wasn't important, that, you know, that the virgin birth wasn't important. I've heard guys say, God could have done another, any other way, some other way. And all I have to ask them is simply this, who were you to say that God could have brought salvation about some other way? It's one thing to say, you know, that God, you know, could have sent the people of Israel some other way to the promised land. He could have gone to the south or northeast or west. I get that. Those are just technical, you know, minor things. It's one thing to say, you know, when Jesus uh, spat on some mud and put it on the person's eyes to heal them, he didn't have to spit on the mud. I get that. That's, that's, we're not talking about the fundamental essence of faith. But to say that God could have sent Jesus to save us some other way is to presume upon God something only he has the right to presume upon himself. It is to question the holiness of God. God, in his terms of saving us, only does that which is perfect and within his plan. To say that God had options is to say that God could have done it some other way is to indicate that maybe he didn't pick the right way or the best way. Even to say that he picked the best way is to indicate he had options besides the cross. And God determines 
what his way is. And God always does that which is perfect, holy, complete. Anything other than acting in accordance to his holiness is not an acceptable alternative to God. Who am I to question that God could have sent Jesus some other way? That's how heresies start. With the incarnation of Christ, you come to the resurrection, which we've dealt with in length in the series of the cross. And not to go into a ton of time, but we believe that Christ died for the cross on our sins in our place. He died, and God raised you back to life. We spent a whole series, six weeks. I got a seventh week coming up on a, this week, the seventh in, it, in the series. And I'm going to talk about all that again. And then the third part of the doctrine of Jesus is we have his return. And Jesus talks about his return in vague forms, but then he says, I'm going to leave, but I'll come again. Then in Acts 1, when he leaves, the apostles are looking up. An angel said, what are you doing staring in the sky? He's going to come again just as he said he would, and he will. Now, I realize in the second coming of Christ, there's a whole lot of complexities to that. And uh, the book of Revelation deals with it. Paul deals with it. You know, uh, in, in particular, to simply say this, the fundamental things about the second coming of Christ that you need, that all need to agree upon, regardless of the details beyond that. He will come back. When he comes back, life as we know it will be different. <laughs> he puts an end to everything. There'll be a judgment, and then you'll be assigned either heaven or hell based on your commitment to Christ. That is the doctrine of Jesus in a nutshell, a really brief nutshell. The fifth doctrine, then, is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to call the Trinity one doctrine. It is a doctrine that is a subset of the Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three personalities. And I'm not going to go into a lot of details about the Holy Spirit. The best place to, to, to go in the doctrine about the Holy Spirit is Acts. The book of Acts talks about the Holy Spirit, especially chapter 2. And then Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit at length in John 14, 15, and 16. Simply to say this about the Holy Spirit, what he does, without any confusion. To a person that is lost, the Holy Spirit works in two ways. To convict them of sin and convince them of their need for Jesus. The Holy Spirit in the life of the unbeliever convicts them of sin. Convinces them they need Jesus. We don't do that, by the way. I don't do that when I preach. It's not my job to convict or convince anybody of anything. It's my job to communicate it. I think I said that last week. There was a slide up. Remember that? Some of you took a picture of it, got it wrong, took a selfie, but it's still there. Whenever people take pictures, I always think I ought to pose next to it. Like, it's my handiwork, but I don't do that. Once you, at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit does two other things. He cleanses you of sin, and he comes to reside within you. He saves you. The Holy Spirit actually saves us. We sing the song, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. I know, it's, not, it's a great song, Mike. I love singing it, keep singing it, and it does, but technically the Holy Spirit saves. It's the Holy Spirit's job. He cleanses us of our sin, and he comes and sanctifies us or saves us. Through what Jesus did on the cross. <laughs> don't, don't say, Jesus doesn't save us. The pastor said he doesn't save us. I didn't say that. Jesus saves us. He saves us through the work of the Holy Spirit. He wants to do two more things in the life of a believer. He will give us gifts we may or may not use, and he will give us guidance. So he gives all of you at least one gift. Some of you are still trying to find it and unwrap it, but he gives you a gift, and he will give you guidance. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Every believer has the indwelling of the Spirit. This brings us to the sixth doctrine, and that is the doctrine of the church. The word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means the called out one. Ek is the Hebrew preposition to come out. Kaleo, to call the ones who were called out, Ecclesia. And it speaks of two types of churches, the church universal or the large church. We're all a part of the church of Christ. Not the denomination, 
you don't want to be a part of that church. You don't want to be a part of the church of Christ. Because if you are and you're in a Baptist church, you're going to hell. But uh, I know. I shouldn't say that stuff. But it's fun to pick on those denominations that are so unbelievably wrong. Um, but we're part then of a local church. There's lots of little local churches made up of all numbers and size. Jesus mentions the church for the first time in Matthew 16. I'm actually preaching uh, from Matthew 16 Sunday, but not from that per se. But it's really in the book of Acts that the church comes to fruition. We see the, the book of Acts, the church comes alive. And there becomes a church. And then Paul keeps writing to churches. And in, in the book of Revelation, Jane, I mean, John writes to churches. And the church then becomes the, the way that Christianity then is translated into the world. Church is not a building. I know we call it the church. We say, we're going to church, and I got all that. But who we are is a group of believers. We are a group of believers united by a common salvation and a common Savior and a common message. That is who we are. Some of the things we may do may be different from place to place, and I get that. But there's a commonality, there's a unity. And we are the way that the Christian faith is expressed and translated into the world around us. It is not done through parachurch organizations. It's not done through the Billy Graham associations. God bless Billy Graham. It's with the Lord now I know. Billy Graham isn't the one. He preached and all that. Got it. Understand. People were saved at Billy Graham. Got it. What Billy Graham does at every place he did, went, or what he did, doesn't do anything anymore, but what he did, every place he went, he made sure the local churches were involved so that people were saved, were assigned to a local church because he understood that Christianity was expressed and was fundamentally translated through the local church. He always understood that. Like all the guys you watch on TV that want you to send your money, that's not, how, that's not how it works. They don't do anything. The church is the vehicle, the mechanism, the organization, the living body through which Christ functions and operates in the world in which we live. We are responsible for sharing the gospel. And we are responsible for telling people about Christ. And churches are different types. They're all sorts of, why are there so many different denominations and different churches? Well, because in a legitimate way, they express things a little differently in their lives, and that's okay. Because people are different, and people have different avenues to come to Christ. Only one way through Jesus, I get salvation. But so all of you, you know, come to Christ through different means. And for some people, there are certain denominations, certain groups, the way they think, the way they function, the way they operate, that, that can connect to people better than what we do. And I get that. So there's not only one true church. You hear that, you know, in some denominations, like the one previously mentioned. There are Baptists you think that. There are, I, there's like 220 different types of Baptists. You know, just, I forget how many. I mean, there's a ton. Some of them are just crazy. And I have, in fact, I may bring the list in the next week or two. The, 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 some of them, the seven, two seeds slain in the spirit, some Baptists. I mean, I don't even know why. That's, whatever. I mean, they're, they're all pretty small except for us because kind of weird. But some of them, you know, the old, the old uh, landmark Baptists would tell you they're the only true way to come to Jesus. The only church is the landmarkers, you know, and, they, and, and they'll tell you that. Well, that's not true. But each church must be faithful to the cross and to scripture. And you hear me quite often, critical now of a lot of denominations, not because they're not Baptists, but because they have strayed away from the fundamental teachings that I have just shared with you. And by sharing away from those teachings, they have shared away from the truth. They are ceasing to be the vehicle through which people are saved. In fact, how can people be saved through an organization, an organization that does not accurately teach 
the revelation of God and the sinfulness of man and that Jesus is the only way of salvation. When you include other religious traditions and organizations as a way to God, you have forfeited all rights to be called Christian because you're denying the fundamental teachings of the faith of Christ. So the church is how we express it. I was going to talk about the organization of the church and all that, but we just don't have time, which is a good thing because that gets kind of controversial. I may do that next week. And uh, how churches, there are different types of churches, why some have elders and some don't, and while we're congregationalists. But that's the basic six doctrines in a quick nutshell. We have like a minute. Do anybody have a question about that and not by what Christian said last week or about Revelation or something you don't understand from something previous? Yeah, good. So, so now y'all all know everything there is to know about the Christian faith. So I'll see you Sunday.